While you remain standing, I would love for you to open up your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse number 1, if you'd remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. I love this chapter, and I believe that Hebrews chapter 4 contains one of the greatest promises that has been given to the believer. Um, Outside of salvation, I cannot think of a greater promise in the Scripture for the believer, and yet as wonderful, as breathtaking as this promise is, I don't know that we'll ever truly understand the depths of it this side of eternity. I think that the author had so much more in mind than what we're grasping even now. And I don't know that even in a hundred lifetimes we would ever be able to scratch the surface of this incredible promise in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This morning I'd like to share with you just a very simple word entitled, Resting in the Lord. Father, would you glorify your name in the word that is spoken today. Lord, you know every man and every woman that is here. You know what they're facing. You know what they're going through. You know what they will face in the future. I pray that this morning your word would speak to their heart that no matter what they face, there is a rest in you. That Lord will shelter them from whatever lies ahead. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen and amen. Bless the Lord. Give him praise one more time before you're seated here today. Bless God. And before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' name. It goes without saying, but we are living in times of great unrest, great unrest. Over the last several months, much has been reported about the growing unrest in Hong Kong that all started over a proposed extradition law, and it has led to protests and demonstration, and now it appears that it's almost out of control. 
There is unrest all around us. There is political unrest. There is financial unrest. In fact, just this week, the volatility of our stock market was highlighted over uh, trade concerns between the United States and China. In general, there is just a great uncertainty concerning the future that is gripping our global community today. And it's interesting because in spite of the tireless efforts of politicians and special interest groups and lobbyists and actors and activists and law enforcement agents, military personnel and action financers, investors, strategists, doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, medication and intervention, we seem no closer to relieving that stress and that unrest. In fact, it appears on all counts to be escalating and getting worse. The line from that famous nursery rhyme rhyme comes to mind, all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot seem to put our world back together again. And the national and the international unrest that is felt by all of us and the global community is only intensified and becomes more concentrated and acute when it hits home. And many of us here today are in a state of emotional, mental, spiritual, and maybe even physical unrest stemming from situations that are simply too numerous to itemize here in our time together. But I want you to know that as hopeless as that all sounds, there is hope this morning. And it's found right here in the fourth chapter of Hebrews in verse number 9. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. How many of you are thankful that there is a promise that remains for the people of God that in spite of the global unrest, there is rest in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It is for everyone, but the only ones that will ever partake of it are those who are the people of God, and the people of God are those who are saved through Jesus Christ. The inheritance of the believer, the birthright, if you will, of each one who truly has made Christ their Lord and their Savior is an abiding, sustaining, and unshakable rest. Folks, listen, I I know that it's a little disconcerting, but there are storms coming and they are prophesied literally all throughout the Word of God. There will be temporary reprieves from these storms, times when they will escalate and even times when they de-escalate. In fact, Paul tells us that right before the final storm strikes, men and women will say, peace and safety. There will be this moment when everything seems to be okay. And the global community will say, finally, the peace and the safety that we have been longing for. But then he says, sudden destruction comes upon them as the labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. That is hopeless, but I love the next verse. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He 
says, yes, there is a final storm coming. And it will come on the heels when they're saying peace and safety. And sudden destruction will strike. But you don't have to fear because you are not of the night. You do not have to fear about this overtaking you like a thief. Because I have given you eyes to see and ears to hear. And I've given you discernment so that you can be well prepared for the days that lie ahead. How many of you are thankful that this day does not have to overtake us? but we can be ready for it in Jesus' mighty name. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture are we told that we will not experience storms as Christ followers, but the Scriptures do reveal time and time again that we have a shelter in the storm and that we have rest even in the midst of turmoil. And we are encouraged not only to seek that rest when these storms come, but we are, according to Hebrews, to fear the possibility of falling short of it and to diligently enter into it lest we fall. The author of Hebrews is pleading with his audience to understand that the only shelter we have in these storms is resting in the Lord. And with that in mind, we are to fear at the possibility of falling short of it and to diligently work daily that we might enter into it in Jesus' name. It's not ironic that it was said in the book of Hebrews because many of you know that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were being so heavily persecuted that many of them were even thinking of going back to Judaism and departing from the faith. And he says, don't do that because there is no other hope. There is no other way of life. The only hope we have is entering into the rest of Jesus Christ. Be diligent to enter in. Do not forsake it because it is the only hope you have in Jesus' mighty name. We need to find our shelter in Jesus Christ. This week I found myself meditating on this rest that's described here in Hebrews chapter 4, just once again trying to ascertain exactly what he is speaking of. As I said to you at the very beginning of our time together here this morning, that for all that has been written of Hebrews chapter 4, for all of the investigation and all the study, we don't really seem to fully appreciate what he is talking about here when he speaks of entering into his rest. To me, there is no doubt that the primary thrust, the foundational truth, the foundational principle that he is speaking of here is that of salvation. Uh, Because there is no rest except for those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can I hear a good amen? Ultimately, that is the rest for our soul. There is no rest, the Bible says, for the wicked. But for those who know Christ as their Lord and their Savior, there is rest for their soul. And we're thankful for that. But what struck me this week was the fact that he was speaking clearly to believers to those who have already committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Because he says right here that there remains a rest for the people of God. So he's directing his comments to the believer. There is a rest for the people of God. And what he is simply saying is that within the context of salvation, there is another level of rest that you have not yet experienced. So even though he is talking to believers, he shows them something that they have not really experienced yet. A rest that is in Christ that they have not known to this point. 
So even though he is speaking of salvation, he is calling them to something more, to something deeper within the context of that salvation. He's saying you're saved. I know you're saved. But there is a rest within that salvation that you as believers have not yet entered into. He's calling them to a deeper, a more intimate relationship with the Lord where they find, if you will, that sweet spot. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Where now serving the Lord feels effortless. Where literally your trust and your hope is exclusively in the Lord. This is a place where you find a supernatural peace that passes all understanding. And you find a joy that is indescribable in human words and full of the glory of God. In other words, it is a joy that is generated out of a continual revelation of the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. It's where you get so lost in the presence of Almighty God, that your soul relaxes in every situation in the grace of God and you find rest because you know, having seen the glory of Almighty God, no weapon formed against me can ever prosper and all that rise up against me will fall because I believe in Almighty God and He's going to see me through it in Jesus' name. And some of you, you're saying to yourself, well, Pastor Kurt, you're saying that I can know God in a deeper level than I do already? Absolutely. I think of what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 10. He says that I may know Him. And that word know is important because it's not a one and done proposition. He's not just saying I know Him. He's saying that I may know Him progressively. That I may continue to know Him at a deeper and a more intimate level. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me in this naked moment. Paul says, I know the Lord, but I don't know him as much as I want to. I want to know him more. I want to become more intimately acquainted with the power power of his resurrection with the fellowship of his sufferings because I haven't attained it yet I'm not perfected yet I'm pressing on because I need more of the Lord in my heart how many of you here are panting after God like the deer pants for the water brook that's what he's saying you know a lot of times we miss the thrust of these scriptures because we don't take the time to look at the historical context of them And what you would miss is that this letter was written 28 years after Paul first received Christ on the road to Damascus. He has been serving the Lord for 28 years at this point. And some people would say, Paul, you know the Lord better than anybody else. And Paul said, after 28 years, I don't feel like I know Him enough. I want to know Him even more. I want to know the power of His resurrection. This from a man who has spent the last 28 years raising men from the dead and healing the blind and healing the deaf. And he says, I still don't know the power of His resurrection. I want to know more intimately the fellowship 
of his suffering. This is a man who's been shipwrecked. This is a man who's been beaten and stoned and left for dead. But he says, I still don't know even that affectionate suffering that he experienced. And I'll never be satisfied because I'll never attain it. But I press on and lay hold of it because I want to know the depths of my God in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, folks. Never get satisfied with where you are as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs for you in Jesus' name. And in the same way, I believe the author of Hebrews is looking well beyond just that initial conversion experience. And he's peering now deeper into a level of intimacy where the soul finds rest in him. A place where, just as it says in verse 10, we cease from our works as God did from his. Now obviously, he is talking about the Sabbath, if you will, that God established on the seventh day when he ceased from his creative works. God created the universe and all that is in it within those six days. And on the seventh day, he took a sabbatical, if you will. He took a, a, a Sabbath and he rested. It doesn't mean that he was tired out. It just means that he ceased from his labors, his creative work. And what he's telling us there is that there is a place in our relationship with the Lord where we cease from our labors. It is a place where we cease from our labor and striving to make life better and striving to make the pain go away. It's where we cease from all of our planning and all of our scheming and all of our engineering in order to find rest, in order to find peace of mind. And we just rest in the presence of the Lord because we have convinced ourselves and we are confident that even in the storm, somehow God is going to make a way where there seems to be no other way. It is that rest that Moses entered into when he was standing at the shores of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was behind him and everyone was panicking and he said, hey, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It's that peace. It is that rest that David had when he went out against the champion Goliath with nothing but a slingshot and five stones. It's the peace that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had when they got thrown into to the fiery furnace. It is that rest that Daniel had when they threw him into the lion's den and God closed the mouth of the lions all the night through. Folks, I'm talking about a rest that no matter what comes your way, there is a peace, there is a calmness that God is going to see me through somehow in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, give Him all the praise in this house. Bless the Lord. <laughs> you know, as I was... As I was thinking about these things, I was reminded of when Josh and Amanda were growing up and they were still young in their teenage years. And, of course, they went through the typical teenage crises like every other teenager does. And it was a mega crisis to them. And, and they wouldn't share it immediately because mom and dad don't know anything. We know that. And, and uh, you know, you would just see them stressed out. And for days you would just see it wearing on them. And they were emotionally spent in the process. And we would just watch and wanting to help, but just waiting for them. And inevitably there would come that knock on our door at night. Or they would come down in the basement and they would just unload on us and tell us what was going on. And then we would begin to counsel them. And we would tell them what to do. And immediately you could see their countenance change. Immediately there was a sense of relief. 
relief because they knew they weren't carrying that burden any longer. Can I tell you that happens with us every day. We face trials and difficulties in life and we try so hard in our own strength, leaning on our own understanding to fix it rather than simply coming to our Father and leaving it with Him. And through the years of counseling, I've seen this to be true because most situations that end up in my office are only after years of trying to figure it out on their own. And now they've made matters worse when early on, if they had just hidden themselves in the rest of Almighty God and just said, Lord, you fight my battle, then God would have brought them through in Jesus' mighty name. Can I tell you, there's a better way. You don't have to fight it any longer. Just give it to God and let Him make a way where there seems to be no other way. You know, in in salvation, which again is a primary subject being dealt with here, we are all saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man would boast. And we all know that we can't save ourselves. We can't possibly live holy enough to be saved. We're saved by the grace of God that we receive through our faith and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But it doesn't stop at salvation. It is this way with believers who have entered into that rest within the context of their salvation. They have ceased from their efforts to make things better and they just simply rest in the Lord by faith experiencing the goodness of God. And you can see them. You've been around them. There are some believers even here today. It doesn't matter what news they get. It doesn't matter what happens to them. They remain steady in all seasons of life. And why is that? Because they've got greater intestinal fortitude than you do. Because they've got stronger willpower. No, they've entered into the rest of Jesus Christ. And they say it doesn't matter. No weapon formed against me can prosper. Because I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities things present things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord come on is there anybody here that wants to enter in to that rest today in Jesus name in this place of rest is I believe it's something that we need to find quickly, especially when you consider the growing complexities of the last days that we're moving into. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse number 25, he says, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And upon the earth there will be distress, trouble, and anguish of nations in bewilderment and perplexity without resources, left wanting, embarrassed, in doubt, not knowing which way to turn at the roaring, the echo of the tossing of the sea, men swooning away or expiring with fear and dread and apprehension and expectation of the things that are coming on the world for the very powers of the heavens will be shaken and caused to totter you know it's very important to note here that that last sentence was not being spoken metaphorically or figuratively it was being spoken literally what Jesus was saying in in the days right before the return of Christ even the heavens are going to become unglued men and women will literally look up into the heavens and 
all hell will be breaking loose. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. I just know they're going to look up and be terrified. So you can imagine what the distress level will be on that day when they look up and even the sustained heavens begin to fall apart. There's going to be distress of nations. That word distress there, it, it means to compress. It's the idea of compressing. Uh, it's the idea of a narrowing pathway. It was a word that was used to describe a pathway that was very narrow and hard to navigate through. And the deeper you went into the path, the more confined it became. It's a sense that the walls are closing in around you. And some of you that struggle with claustrophobia are already starting to hyperventilate. But literally, that's what's happened. It's this idea that the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, it's going to feel like the walls are closing in around us. And then he says that they're going to be perplexing days. Perplexing means a loss of way. It means possessing no resources to help. And it also carries the idea of coming to your wit's end. So he's saying that the days are going to become so difficult as we move closer to the coming of the Lord. Because man has lost his way, he will possess no resources to help him out of the trial that he finds himself in. And he will come to his wit's end because he doesn't know what to do. Jesus is telling us that the days will be so politically tumultuous, so environmentally tumultuous, so astronomically tumultuous that people will literally be dying from fear and dread because there are no answers for what is happening. They will have no resources by which they can deal with what is yet to come and so they'll be terrified. But can I tell you that in the midst of that, there is going to be a remnant of men and women who have found their rest in Jesus Christ and while the rest of the world has fallen apart, they are going to have peace. They are are going to have joy. They're going to have contentment. That is what's going to separate the believer from the unbeliever. It's not that we're not going to go through the same thing, but while we're going through it, we're going to be lifting up our head because our redemption is drawing nigh and there'll be no fear in us in Jesus' name. Can somebody give God a shout of praise if you believe that? And that's why he says, let us fear lest we fall short of it, because it is our only hope. If you fall short of this rest, there is no other plan to bring you through those last days. This is it. And we must find it. What's tragic is that most believers do not. I've been in church life all of my days. Doesn't mean I was saved all of my life, but I've been in church all of my life, and I have only found few that have actually entered into that rest. And the author of Hebrews deals with that here, and he actually provides the most common reason that Christians fall short of that rest and then offers an illustration for it. It's all there in the first two verses of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. This is the illustration. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That is the problem. The illustration that he is providing for us is that of the Israelites when they came out of Egyptian slavery 
but died in the wilderness after wandering there for 40 years. And the reason that they did wander and never entered into the promised land, which was the land of rest, and the reason many believers never enter into this rest is the same, unbelief. Unbelief being the willful, deliberate decision to not mix the Word of God that is preached with faith and confidence in God that brings us to a place of, of obedience to Him. Without question. You know, unbelief is, I believe it is the most grievous sin in the Bible. There is no other sin that is worse um, than unbelief. Uh, You might want to say that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is worse because there is no um, forgiveness for it. And and that would be true. Unbelief would be the step right before that. Unbelief is a grievous sin, and it is the most difficult sin we struggle with and we experience in our hearts. It is a constant battle, and it is the greatest reason that many never experience and live habitually in the rest of God. In fact, this is such a grievous sin that the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 12, Beware, brethren, that's important. He's not speaking to unbelievers here. He says, beware brethren. So he's talking to believers. So what he's about to talk about will affect believers. And that's important because people will say it's not for us. No, he says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you, brethren, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that Any one of us, if we are not careful, can develop an evil heart of unbelief that eventually leads to our departure from the living God Almighty. And shame on you if you think it can happen to you. Let him who takes, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Unbelief is different than doubt. I believe that. I, I believe that there are shades of doubt and unbelief and shades of unbelief and doubt. I, I do believe that, but they are different. Doubt is something that we all can battle with in moments when we are being tested. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord or how new you are to the faith. All of us immediately in moments of testing can waver in doubt. I mean, that's just the reality. Unbelief is different. Unbelief is defiant, it is willful, it is deliberate, it is an intentional act that ultimately leads us to take matters into our own hands, thus accusing God of being unfaithful and unreliable. And any of us can do that. When we hear the word of the Lord, but we say, I know what God says, but... In my situation, it has to be different. What you're doing when you say that is you're accusing God of being unfaithful, unreliable, and the provision that He has made is not sufficient for you. It minimizes His power, it minimizes His ability, and it undermines His provision in our lives. And it is that unbelief that keeps most believers from never entering into the rest of the Lord. And the illustration that he provides for us is that of 
Israel after they were delivered from the Egyptian slavery, but before they went into the promised land. Again, a land he referred to as a land of rest. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here. Don't worry. I'm not going to go back through the history of Israel here. I just want to look quickly at what the author said about them at the very end of chapter 3, because that's the context of chapter 4. He says there, beginning at verse 16, For who, having heard rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Now, just bear with me for a moment. To understand this, you just need to remember that for 400 years, Israel was in slavery to the Egyptians. But God heard their cry, and after a series of plagues, one night sets them free. Just let that sink in for a moment. 400 years of slavery, and they were set free one night. How many of you know that God can change your life in one moment in time? 400 years of slavery reversed in one evening on that Passover, that very first Passover. But as they're on their way to the promised land, to this land of rest, you may remember, and I'm simplifying this, but you may remember that Moses sent 12 spies into that promised land to find out what they would be facing when they went in. God did not mandate that as far as we can tell. Sometimes it's better just to go by faith and let God have His way. But He sends 12 in. They come back. Ten of them give an evil report. Ten of them say, Hey, what can we tell you? This land is flowing with milk and honey. There are plenty of provisions for us and for our people for generations and generations to come. However, there are giants in the land. There are walled cities. And we look like grasshoppers in their sight. We cannot go in. But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, that came back and they said, What are you talking about? He said the fact that there are giants in the land, the fact that there are walled and fortified cities in the land, the fact that we look like grasshoppers in their sight is irrelevant. God told us this is our land. And he said, go up and possess it. We got to go right now. That was the word of God that was preached. But the children of Israel would not listen to them. They listened to the other ten. And they would spend the next 40 years wandering around in circles in that wilderness until that generation died and their corpses rotted in the sand. Even Moses died in the wilderness because of his temporary unbelief and his unwillingness to believe that God would make a way where there was no other way. Now listen, I tell you that to tell you this. Egypt has always been a type of or an illustration of sin and of the world. And inasmuch as the Lord brought them out of the world, but they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, it is a reminder to each and every one of us that you can be saved but never enter into His rest. 
The issue that I'm dealing with here is not your salvation. Your salvation is between you and Almighty God. I'm not your Savior. All I can do is pray that you are working out daily your salvation with fear and with trembling. But that's God's business. I'm just telling you that I'm tired of seeing people say that they're saved, but they never enter into that rest. That the same panic, the same fear, the same terror, the same anger that is in the world is in the body of Christ. Folks, it should not be that. That way there is a rest in Christ when you believe the word of God you'll make it in Jesus mighty name come on can I hear a better amen than that bless God why didn't they enter in verse 19 we see they could not enter in because of unbelief and that unbelief turned into outright rebellion and disobedience Because in verse 18, remember, God swore to himself that they would not enter into his rest because they did not obey. And the reason is because, again, in in chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The Word of God is powerful, folks, but it can only be released in your life when you mix it with your faith. And your faith is not that you believe it. There's a difference between belief and faith. I can believe something but not put my faith in it. I don't have faith until I obey what I say I believe. Even the devils believe and they tremble, but they are not saved. It has nothing to do with just belief. It is faith. And they never did. They heard the word that Joshua and Caleb brought. The word came to them and said, we are able. God has given us this land. Let's just go right now. God will take care of us somehow. And they said, no, we're not going to mix that word with our faith. Instead, we're going to spend the next 40 years dying and decaying in this in this terrible wilderness. And many of us are in the same place today. We want God's rest, but we want it on our terms. Can I tell you, you can never enter God's rest while you're obsessed with this world and an old mindset. That's why Paul said that we've got to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We don't think like the world thinks. The world thinks by what feels good, what looks good, what builds me up, the pride of life. But a child of God tests and proves that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And they say, I don't understand it. I don't know how God is going to do it, but I am going to obey Him. And I believe that even if I face giants and walled cities, somehow God is going to bring it down and make a way in Jesus' mighty name. i got to wonder, how many marriages have died and are rotting currently in a wilderness? Because a husband and wife, though they heard the word of God preached, refused to mix it with faith, and they continue to disobey God. I wonder how many here this morning have never experienced the supernatural peace and joy that we're talking about here today, because rather than ceasing from their labors and their works and their attempts to make life better, they just continue to hold on to an old worldly mindset and an old worldly way of doing things. It's tragic when I see believers that are still laboring under an old way of living when there is such a better way in Jesus Christ. 
Some of you here this morning, you've heard the Word of God for years. Some of you for decades. You've heard the uncompromised Word of God preached here and even in other churches that you were a part of, but you refuse to mix that Word with faith and you die in the wilderness. We've heard husbands love your wives without qualification. He never qualifies it. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wife if she deserves it. If she's lovable, he just says, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, respect your husbands, even as unto the Lord. We've heard the word of the Lord. Give your tithes and your offerings. Bring it all into the storehouse of the Father. And he will open up for you the windows of heaven and pour upon you a blessing that you cannot contain. We hear the word preached. Forgive that you might be forgiven. Show mercy so that you might be shown mercy. And yet year after year we continue to live with an evil heart of unbelief. Making excuses for our behavior. And we never experience rest for our tormented soul. Instead of that rest and that joy and that peace, we're anxious, we're contentious, we're fearful, we're spiteful, we're full of gossip and anger, we're resentful, judgmental, critical, depressed, argumentative. We have all of the same attitudes that the world does. And we just wander around in the desert of unbelief while our spirits are decaying every day and soon, if nothing changes, we'll die in the wilderness. I'm reminded in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, there's a day when Jesus was going out on the road and one came running to him. And he knelt before him. And and the fact that he came running should tell you something. There's an urgency in this young man. He runs to him and he kneels before him and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And he's just, again, he's frustrated. I've been doing that, but I still don't know how to have everlasting life. And Jesus, looking at him, listen to these words, loved him. So everything that Jesus is about to say, he's saying it out of love. He says, because I love you, young man, I'm telling you, this one thing you're lacking, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, follow me. Listen to this. But he was sad at the word. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Wow. What a sad story. I mean, this young man is full of unrest, obviously, because he comes running to Jesus, and he has no peace. There's no rest in his heart because he's afraid of dying. He's afraid of where he is going to be when he dies. And he runs up to Jesus. He falls at his knees, and he begs him, Jesus, what must I do to have everlasting life? Because I'm going to tell you, all that I have and all that I've done has not given me any rest in my heart that I'm ready to meet the Lord. And Jesus said to him, well, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. And he says, I have kept the commandments. 
All of my life since I was a young man I've been keeping them. But I still have this unrest in my heart. No peace. I'm not ready to meet God. What must I do to have everlasting life? He says, son, because I love you, I'm going to tell you this. I want you to go home and I want you to liquidate every one of your assets. And then I want you to distribute them to the poor. And then you'll store up treasures in heaven where moth does not corrupt. And thieves do not break in and steal. Then I want you to come and take up your cross and follow me. And trust me all the days of your life. And listen to this. It says when he heard these words, he was sad. These are the words you've been waiting for. You just asked him, what do I need to have everlasting life? You've got to sell it all, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Well, that wasn't what I thought you were going to say. This is what you wanted, but now, because it's not what you expected, you don't want anything to do with it. You don't want to mix your faith with the Word of God and believe that He is going to make a way for you for the rest of your days. And I'm going to tell you, folks, that is the way it is here in church. It's the way it is in my counseling office. People will come in. What do I do? What do I need to do to have everlasting life? What do I need to do to have a better marriage? What do I need to do to have any kind of financial security? What do I need to do? And I'll open up the Word of God and I'll give it. And they will leave my office sad, sometimes mad, sometimes offended, because I didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. I told them what they actually needed in order to have it. Folks, at some point, you've got to say, It doesn't matter whether I agree with it or not. If it's the Word of God, I'm going to obey. And somehow, God is going to make a way in my life. In Jesus' name. How many people have heard the Word of God in here through the years and got offended and left instead of just saying, wait a minute. Maybe this is what God is saying in this hour. Some of you are in the same boat this young man is because your confidence for the future is how much is in your 401k. And every waking day, you get up and see how you can maximize your Social Security. And you're thinking about how you're going to be able to pay for your, uh, for your uh, medical bills. And, and like, how can I leverage this? And how can I move this money around? And that is your God. And God, what, I just want to ask you, what would happen if God came to you and said, I want you to liquidate it all. I want you to go back to work and trust me. Oh, Pastor Kurt, he wouldn't do that. (laughs) He did do that. Don't sit there and tell me God would never do that. He did. If God thinks that your trust is in money, he'll make you give it up. Oh, no, no, no. I, I trust the Lord. Yeah. Well, which do you fear more, losing everything or losing your walk with God? For some of you, it's not money. For some of you, you are afraid of being alone. And your fear of being alone has caused you to go from one toxic relationship to another toxic relationship. And God just says, I want you to just throw your hands up and say, Lord, if I'm never married, you're all that I need. Oh, come on, man. I'm preaching better than your amen in today. Look, for some of you, it's, 
it's bitterness and unforgiveness. You, you've got some anger in your heart for people that have hurt you and offended you in your past, and you won't let it go because you're afraid, just like Jonah, that if you forgive them, that God is going to show them mercy, and you don't believe that they deserve mercy. There are believers that will never enter into his rest because they cannot believe God's word. And just like this man who came with unrest but left even with sorrow, you're compounding your pain. And you don't have to any longer. There is a rest for the believer. Church, I'm going to close this out very awkwardly, but this is how the Lord put it in my heart. In fact, I'm going to ask the musicians to come. I want you to listen one more time to these words. Verse 9, chapter 4. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Think about it. That remains even to the... This was a promise that was first given to the days of Joshua and Moses. And it still remains today under a new covenant. There remains a rest for the people of God. You don't have to live with stress and trying to figure it out on your own anymore. You can relax and give it to God. You say, what do I have to do to obtain it? What do I have to do to obtain this? We gave it, verses 2 and 10. Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works. What do you have to do to obtain this rest? First, you have to mix your faith with the word that is preached and say, Lord, it doesn't matter whether I agree with this, whether I understand it or not, I'm going to obey it because I trust you alone. And then you've got to cease from your works. You've got to give it to God and just be obedient to Him. What does that look like? I always use marriage because it's such a great illustration. Husbands, if you have a wife that's gone rogue and has gone off the rails, okay, it means you love her like Christ loves the church and stop trying to change her and let God work in her heart and her life ladies if your husband's gone off the rails it means you keep respecting him as unto Christ and let the Lord work you stop trying to change him let God do a work can I hear a good amen? I mean, that's, that's what it looks like. It doesn't mean that you're inactive. If you need a job, I'm not saying go home and just say, Lord, give me a job, give me a job. No, you've got to go out. All right, I'm not saying that you don't do anything. It's that you're obedient to what God wants you to do. You don't take matters in your own hands. When is this available? When is this available? This is the most exciting part. Verse 7, again he designates a certain day. There's a designated day for you to obtain this. Saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. When is this available? When is this available? Today. Today. You don't have to leave here with that anymore. I mean, some of you came in stressed out, and God says, you don't have to leave stressed today. 
you can enter in to my rest. Today, all you got to do is stop doing it in your own strength and obey me today. With so much riding on it, we need to do it because he says, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The part that just grips my heart, and this I'm closing, today, after such a long time, man, I just felt like God had a word for someone here today just to say to you, after such a long time of running from me, after such a long time of stressing yourself out, trying to do it in your own strength, leaning on your own understanding, today, today, would you humble yourself and obey me and let me lift that burden? Or will you continue to rebel against me and live all stressed out today after such a long time stop running come to him in Jesus name hallelujah can you stand to your feet here today you lift your hands up to him and thank him for that rest hallelujah come on lift up your voice thank him for that rest in Jesus name hallelujah hallelujah Bless your name, Lord. Bless your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Today. Today. Hallelujah. Today. Today is the acceptable day. Some of you say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Today the acceptable day. Will you yield to him? Hallelujah. Father, do a work in our midst. Lord, one of the reasons that we started doing these first Sundays is because we feel so pressed for time on Sunday morning. So I pray that we'll be back out tonight to spend some more time maybe just take the day to think about these things and what you would require. But Lord, I pray that not one person in this room would leave today and just put this out of, out of mind. But I pray that all of us would deeply consider that even to this day, there is a peace that remains and we can enter into that peace. But we have to mix the word that we hear with faith. Not just belief, but faith that takes form in our obedience. And that we will cease from all of our efforts of trying to figure it all out and we'll just rest in knowing that you are God. In Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's children said, Amen and amen. Give the Lord, give the Lord praise. Amen. I love you all. Have a wonderful day. Please be back tonight, six o'clock. We have a great time together. God bless you.